There's no free lunch in Bitcoin, right? There's no risk-free rate. What is a risk-free rate in Bitcoin? There's no lender of last resort. If you lend out your money to someone, they're taking that, that Bitcoin. Um, they're rehypothecating it. They're lending it out to someone else who lends it out to someone else. And then it ends up, and then Luna, and, and then that person invests in Luna and Luna collapses. And then, you know, it's a cascading effect, which is what we saw last year. Um, and so that's kind of the principle that, that we take, which is that, um, you know, there is no, um, at the end of the day, there is, there is no free lunch. And so what we're building is, is the ability for folks to be able to make a return on their Bitcoin. Um, so that's using, obviously using trading strategies. And right now, um, the trading strategy, um, you know, we've, we've gone out and we've spent the time to be able to develop the trading strategy and we automate the process for users. But that doesn't mean there's no chance that a loss will occur. You know, you, you could lose 2%, you could lose 4%. But um, obviously what we're aiming for is to build a, you know, a passive way of investing that allows for you to make, um, you know, returns on your Bitcoin over a longer period of time. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, I have on Tony and Matt from Atomic Finance. Guys, welcome. Thanks for having us, Joe. Great to be here. Absolutely. Great to, great to have you guys. Um, I want to dive right into it. So, Tony, I know you originally became interested in Ethereum, and then you became a Bitcoiner. Matt, I'm unsure if you had a similar experience getting into the space, but can you both you know, dive into how you became interested in this space and then how you recognized Bitcoin was the innovation you were interested in? Yeah, absolutely. I, it, was, it was actually funny. I think it was myself that got uh, Tony, Tony into the space originally. So I, I actually originally got into the space back in 2014. Um, my dad's a bit of a gold bug. And so, you know, he's just looking for whatever kind of currency, uh, you know, uh, doesn't want to trust the government. So he likes gold, likes silver. And obviously, Bitcoin was was definitely on that list, and so that that's how I originally got introduced. Um, and uh, I, honestly, I forgot about it for a couple of years. You know, 2014 went by. Then we're in 2017. Um, myself and Tony were at uh, we're both roommates actually at the University of Waterloo. Um, and in in Waterloo, there was a lot of um, kind of a th- Ethereum community, um, you know, events going on. There's you know hackathons happening. And so we actually really got introduced to the Ethereum community and what was being built there at the time. Um, and so, you know, I was saying to, to Tony, hey, you should buy some Bitcoin, buy some Ethereum. Um, and we got really interested at the time in what was happening specifically in the DeFi space. You, you know, just the idea of being able to um, actually be able to create financial tools that are accessible anywhere on the Internet. Um, anyone with an Internet connection can access it, you know, without having to have um, you know, a specific bank account or be in a specific jurisdiction, you know, that was just really fascinating to us. And so we actually started both, um, we both started working at Consensus at the time. Um, and I was working on actually atomic swaps between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Tony was working at OpenLaw. But it's in that time, um, you know, shout out to Liquality because they're the ones that actually really got me into Bitcoin even more. There were some Bitcoin maxis on the team um, and they really instilled the, the idea that, hey, um, you know, this is why the properties of Bitcoin are so important. The idea of a hard supply cap, the idea of being able to, um, you know, to have a have a decentralized currency that you know no one has central control of and can change uh, very easily, um, is incredibly important. Um, and so, you know, that's really what got us down the rabbit hole. From then, we started kind of experimenting and uh, building different different tools, and that's what eventually led us towards uh, what we're building now. Yeah. Awesome. I like it. Tony, do you have any background for, for use in particular? 
Yeah, I mean, I think Matt covered most of it. Um, two of us, we were roommates uh, at, uh, at in college, and basically, like, he got me buying my first little bit of Bitcoin uh, on, on Coinbase back in the day. I think it was in 2017. And then uh, just kind of got more and more interested in it, uh, read, read more about, uh, uh, you know, dived into the Eve side of things first, uh, initially, like Matt said. And then um, kind of just like after reading the Bitcoin standard, after kind of like diving into a bunch of books on the Bitcoin side, that was where it kind of clicked for, for me. And, um, and, you know, the importance of maybe, hey, maybe Bitcoin's the real innovation here. Maybe um, uh, it makes sense to just kind of focus on, the, uh, on Bitcoin and building tools on top of Bitcoin. Um, uh, building a more sound foundation is, is ultimately uh, what's going to help us be along for the long run as well. And so that's kind of how we st- slowly made the shift uh, from Ethereum to Bitcoin and uh, where we are today. Yeah, I like it. Uh, I kind of want to get more into you know Bitcoin and, and Ethereum. Like, how has Bitcoin and Ethereum evolved over the, over, you know, the last three years when you guys kind of made the switch from originally being interested in Ethereum and now being interested in Bitcoin? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Well, I think the most obvious one is Ethereum switched to proof of stake. And so um, at the time we were, um, you know, there was a lot of discussion around, you know, proof of stake when we were you know, still in Ethereum and kind of this idea that it was eventually going to make the switch. And I think we, were, we really weren't happy in general with the way decisions were made in Ethereum. Generally, you know, kind of the idea of a hard fork occurring every X amount of time in Ethereum has become, you know, a bit of a standard. And that always seemed concerning uh, to me and I think to Tony as, as well. And so in that time, obviously, we've seen Ethereum finally transition and we've seen, um, you know, really the Ethereum space, instead of being secured by miners, it's now secured by exchanges. And so that's happened. In the meantime, I guess we've had, um, you know, one change on Bitcoin, which is Taproot, um, which obviously has had its positives and negatives. We can talk about ordinals later. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in general, kind of Bitcoin has stayed mostly the same and has stayed the kind of secure and decentralized network that it is. And Ethereum has moved kind of in the other direction. Uh, I don't know. Any, anything to add, Tony? No, I think you hit, you hit on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that was very well said. It's definitely like when I think about Bitcoin, when I think about Ethereum, I think about Bitcoin being the least uncertain asset with Ethereum. Like you mentioned, there's constant hard forks of changing you know the future supply now the future supply i guess is dependent on how many people mint and trade monkey jpegs so there's definitely a lot of uncertainty around eth uh and there's a lot of uh there's a a lack of uncertainty around future uncertainty around bitcoin i would say um i do want to dive into what you guys are building though you guys are co-founders of atomic finance and i'm curious you know what is atomic finance and how does it compare to things like BlockFi, FTX, and Celsius? Yeah, so very simply, Atomic Finance is a mobile app that allows you to get access to financial tools for Bitcoin without having to give up custody of that Bitcoin. Um, what we like to call it is we like to call it sound finance for sound money. Um, basically, you know, financial tools that are no nonsense, they're uh, as transparent, as verifiable, and self-sovereign as Bitcoin itself. Um, and basically, the first of these products are a simple solution um, for folks to earn a return on their Bitcoin stack, uh, again, without giving up custody to a third party. Um, and as many of us in the Bitcoin space knows, especially from the past year, what happened in 2022, um, you know, if we want to really do anything financial with our Bitcoin, whether it's to earn a return on it, whether it's to hedge price downside, um, et cetera, you know, the only solution to do that kind of stuff is really things like 
the BlockFi's of the world, the Celsius's of the world, and FTX. And with those, um, as we are, uh, as we all know these days, uh, well, you're at risk of being rug pulled, right? They're centralized, they're opaque, they force you to give up full control of your cust- uh, of, of your coins to them. And you know, a lot of the best properties of Bitcoin, in terms of its self-sovereign nature, in terms of its transparency, verifiable. Uh, verifi- verifiability, you know, they just go right out the door. They just get uh, squandered whenever you want to do fin- financial things with your Bitcoin. And so kind of like when we were starting to think about ideas in terms of what to build on top of Bitcoin, you know, the question we asked ourselves was, is there a way to be able to do more with your Bitcoin while still being able to keep as many of the po- uh, properties that make Bitcoin Bitcoin? Um, and uh, that's kind of how the whole moniker of um, sound finance for sound money came in, and uh, in terms of you know how folks are able to actually you know earn a return um, on their Bitcoin without giving up custody, um, the way to really think about that is by breaking it down into two things. In terms of where the premiums are coming from, well, um, in our current version uh, of the app, uh, folks are engaging in uh, simple and automated options based strategies in order to earn a return and earn an income on their Bitcoin, and in terms of the second. Uh, question, how is it non-custodial? Uh, I think Matt's going to dive into it a bit more later on in, in, in the podcast, but um, you know, in essence, uh, we use something called discrete law contracts, or DLCs in short, um, which are basically, you can think of them as a very simple um, Bitcoin native primitive uh, that uh, you can use to encode certain types of financial instruments, whether that's a bet, whether that's um, you know, a options contract, etc. And uh, uh, that's uh, all in all, what atomic finance is, and uh, you know what we're trying to build. And longer term, you know, the vision is to basically be able to you know build a one-stop shop uh, financial ecosystem of sound financial tools in the long run. But starting uh, right now with an ability to earn a return on their Bitcoin uh, without giving up custody first. Yeah, I mean, I think what you guys are building is is really cool. I mean, in my mind it's very difficult to outperform Bitcoin. And there's like maybe three things that I, I think are like viable to where you can outperform Bitcoin. Like one is, you know, Bitcoin, like venture capital, investing in early stage companies that are doing things in Bitcoin. And then two is mining. Obviously we work at Blockware where our clients mine Bitcoin. And then three is something like what you guys are building, which is really cool. I know like right now the app is in beta. I've been using it for, for some time now. It's, it's amazing. When do you guys think you're gonna release it to the public? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, we, we tend to take a more cautious approach. Um, and so basically, like, we've kind of been slow rolling it in terms of opening it up more slots for users on our wait list. And so right now we're a couple hundred users in um, and uh, uh, and we've kept limits kind of low in terms of, like, everyone can only invest zero, up to 0.1 BTC. We recently just uh, increased that to 1 BTC um, in the last week or so after seeing the infrastructure being battle tested after a couple months. So, um, you know, no, no firm date just yet in terms of pr- public launch, but uh, I think, you know, um, we're going to continue to uh, expand the number of users um, and uh, hopefully be able to move towards a public release towards, uh, you know, the second half of the year. Awesome. Yeah, I know, like, the current main strategy that I think every user is using right now is like the, the covered call strategy. I think it's really cool. It's what I'm doing on the app. Um, what other strategies do you guys think you may roll out, you know, in the future? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Uh, good question. Like, I think, um, you know, one of the cool things about um, DLCs and, and the infrastructure that we're working with is 
that's quite versatile, right? So basically, you know, depending on what your market outlook is, depending on you know what your risk tolerance is, um, there's the possibility of building out uh, you know a number of different kind of strategies um, meant for that risk profile, meant for that uh, market outlook, and so. You know whether it's you know you want to earn a return during a bear market or you want to kind of hedge against price downside because you think another March 2020 is happening. You know strategies can be built out for those things as well. I think that uh, yeah, there's tons of possibilities um, and uh, we can't wait to kind of build out more. But uh, yeah, uh, we're starting out simple with a cover call strategy and hoping to kind of develop more um, different kind of strategies for different uh, markets moving forward. Yeah, love it. I know. A lot of people in like the crypto space and, and even Bitcoin space sometimes use the term uh, like DeFi, decentralized finance. I've seen you guys use the term sound finance. Do you mind like defining these two terms? I know you, you guys use a little bit of a different terminology. Like what, what do they mean to you? And then like, why did you choose to, to call it sound finance? Yeah, that's a good question. I think to be honest, um, we originally were terming it uh, DeFi. DeFi, hey, we're building DeFi for Bitcoin. But we heard from a lot of Bitcoiners that they just really weren't happy um, with that term being used. Uh, in a certain sense, it seems that it's been tarnished to a certain extent um, with the amount of hacks that have occurred, with the number of um, kind of admin controlled contracts that exist in Ethereum. And so, uh, you know, we, we wanted to kind of distance ourselves from that kind of existing ecosystem that existed. Um, and obviously, kind of sound finance for sound money has a really nice ring to it. Um, but I think really it's, it's just about building, you know, financial tools for Bitcoin that retain as many properties of Bitcoin um, as, as can possibly be done for financial tools. So I think that's really what sound finance is. No, no shit coinery, you know, build it on Bitcoin, build it on the base layer. Um, for, you know, buy Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. Yeah. yeah. I think to, to me, like when I was thinking about that, um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're more interested in building out long-term sustainable infrastructure, financial infrastructure and financial products uh, that can stand the test of time. You know, we're more interested in that than building a pump and dump scheme or like a, um, uh, you know, yield farming scheme to, to, to juice up users early on. And then, and then, and then you're, you know, you're left with a token that doesn't do much and stuff like that. So that's why kind of like we wanted to really distinguish ourselves, I guess, uh, from the pack in a sense and, 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 uh, and not be confused with, with uh, you know, I guess what most folks typically associate with the term DeFi. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I think of the crypto space, like I don't like try to discount everything that I ever see. Like sometimes like mm -hmm. the technology is actually pretty cool. And you know, in the past, I've I've dove into various projects. And I'm like, oh, this is cool, but like, it's completely not sustainable. Like, if you really look into like what they're building, and it's like, this is insane. And yeah, you know, people can speculate and gamble and hope NG, NGU, you know, the token number go up, um, but maybe that's like not actually going to last in the long long run. So um, I'm curious, like, going off of this sound finance term, why do you think it's important, and why does it it matter? Like, why should we build on Bitcoin? Yeah, I think like when we were thinking about it, um, you know, long term, the only way that Bitcoin's really going to succeed as a financial asset is, well, if you can actually do finance with it, right? And, you know, the kind of the default path that we're on right now, um, you know, anything financial, you have to do it on a platform that's centralized and opaque, right? And that's, 
in essence, like what a large driving force for why we're so, you know, we wake up every day wanting to build, um, build out kind of more sound financial infrastructure. In our view, you know, that default path that we're on, um, it's one where, hey, like, sure, Bitcoin has those properties, has those self-sovereign properties um, when it stays in your code storage. But the moment you want to kind of actually do something financial with it, they just go out the window. Well, that's not a really good kind of future that we like necessarily are looking forward to, right? Like we want to, uh, we want a future, uh, or we, you know, if things succeed, we want a future where, um, you know, it's just a self-sovereign or easy to be remain self-sovereign and and to keep things transparent, even when you're doing financial um, things with your Bitcoin rather than just holding it. And so that's why we kind of um, think the sound finance future is so important. We want to really prevent um, that kind of centralized financial future um, from happening. And we don't want it just a reincarnation of the existing financial system. And that's why sound finance is, is in our view, uh, such an important thing, future to fight for. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think it's a critical point. Um, I'm curious, why do you think something like this hasn't been built already? Like, why does everything get built on on other, like something like ETH or Solana or, or whatever? Why is it not built on Bitcoin? And then why is it, I guess, so hard to build things on top of Bitcoin? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think part of it has to do with, um, obviously, you know, kind of what is the purpose of Bitcoin? The purpose of Bitcoin is to be censorship resistant money. It's not to be um, not to be JPEG land. It's not to be, you know, smart contract galore. Um, you know, the, the purpose of Bitcoin is is to be sound money. And and so with that, um, obviously, if you go over to Ethereum and, you know, your average JavaScript developer can go and deploy a smart contract and, and put it up in five, five minutes. And they can use all of this other infrastructure that, that exists for, for making that work. But all that infrastructure doesn't necessarily, you know, exist necessarily for Bitcoin. And so for us, what we had to do to actually get things up and running was build a lot of that infrastructure ourselves from, from scratch. And so, um, so definitely the scripting language is, is definitely something that kind of holds things back. Um, I, I think the, but at the same time, I think that's, that's also an advantage because, um, if you look at, you know, how generally things are built in Ethereum, you have, one large smart contract that is that is pushed out and then that becomes really a honeypot where other people you know attackers can come in and they can try to steal the funds from there whereas in bitcoin you, you don't have kind of the advantage of being able to create this one smart contract and upgrade it and change it how you wish but you have individual contracts for each user and each position that they're doing um and it's really 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 difficult to be able to hack that there's no central honeypot and so you have this massive trade-off that exists. Um, but I think, you know, in the long term, if we're looking at where, what is the infrastructure gonna, that's going to survive the long term and that's not going to have hacks and um, the one that's built on top of sound money, it's, you know, I think it's obviously, um, you know, sound finance on, on Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, those are some great points. Um, what is your view? And this is going to kind of get into our next topic a little bit, but there's kind of like this idea of, over the last year, we learned that like Bitcoin and yield are like somewhat incompatible. Like, or you can't just like put your Bitcoin in a box and earn ten percent a year forever. As we learned, that's probably not something's probably you know you're missing something. There's there's actual risks there. Um, so, what is your view on on people or users using atomic finance like passively versus actively? Like in my mind, 
maybe it's not really uh, likely that you can just put your your Bitcoin in a black box and not look at it for 10 years, and all of a sudden you, your one Bitcoin is now worth like five Bitcoin. I don't know if that's possible. It'd be really cool if you could do that, but I don't know if it's possible. So how do you guys, you know, envision people using atomic finance, whether the users are doing it actively or passively with different strategies that you guys roll out? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Well, I think there's there's two aspects of that, which is number one, um, you know, the conversation around yield, which is that I, I completely agree that yield has, yield has been dra- dragged through the mud and for good reason, right? We had BlockFi, we had Celsius, um, you know, both both blow up to a certain extent. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> I think our, our writer, um, Craig, uh, shout out to him. He, he made a good, he coined a good term, which is you, you'll make 8%. Uh, you'll make 8% yield. You'll never enjoy on Bitcoin. You'll never see again. Right. And, and that was the reality um, of those tools back, you know, this past year. And so I think the reality, you know, with any of these things is that there's no free lunch. There's no free lunch in Bitcoin, right? There's no risk-free rate. What is a risk-free rate in Bitcoin? There's no lender of last resort. If you lend out your money to someone, they're taking that that Bitcoin. Um, they're rehypothecating it. They're lending it out to someone else who lends it out to someone else, and then it ends up, and then Luna, and, and then that person invests in Luna, and Luna collapses, and then you know it's a cascading effect, which is what we saw last year. Um, and so that's kind of the principle that that we take, which is that um, you know there is no. Um, at the end of the day, there is there is no free lunch, and so what we're building is is the ability for folks to be able to make a return on their Bitcoin. Um, so that's using obviously using trading strategies, and right now um, the trading strategy, um, you know, we've we've gone out and we've spent the time to be able to develop the trading strategy, and we automate the process for users. But that doesn't mean there's no chance that a loss will occur. You know, you you could lose two percent, you could lose four percent, but um, obviously what we're aiming for is to build a you know a passive way of investing. That allows for you to make, um, you know, returns on your Bitcoin over a longer period of time. Um, in the, you know, if we're looking at the long term uh, of, of atomic finance, definitely we we want to allow for folks to be able to get access to those to automate the trading strategies. But in the future as well, we're planning to, you know, definitely add back the uh, the ability for people to do it manually to be able to trade themselves. Um, and so there's always going to be a balance there of, you know, allowing just giving people the tools to be able to do what what fits best in their kind of portfolio and um, they're, they're, um, you know, the risk that they want to take. Foundation is one of my favorite Bitcoin companies. Their product Passport is one of the best Bitcoin hardware wallets on the market. It is air gapped and highly secure. I strongly encourage you to go to foundationdevices.com and use the code blockware and get $10 off your passport. It's a great way to easily and securely store the private keys to your Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think the covered call strategy that you guys have is, is very interesting because it basically enables you, hey, you know, if, if Bitcoin doesn't soar in the short to intermediate term, you're going to be earning some sort of passive income off of just your Bitcoin in a very transparent way with your app. But then, you know, if Bitcoin does soar, maybe I'll end up with slightly less Bitcoin, but like the the real value of that Bitcoin is like, magnitudes higher so like i'm pretty happy making 10 percent in like a month or something like that so i think it's a it's a really interesting strategy not necessarily to put you know 100 percent of your bitcoin in something like this but to put a portion of your bitcoin that you want to just generate yield off of or live off of yeah exactly well 
Well, I think you touch on a really important thing here, which is that like don't, don't put all your Bitcoin in this. Like, have your Bitcoin in cold storage. But why is why is it that for the majority of the time right now that you know you, you go from cold storage and the only alternative to cold storage, you know, or a hot wallet is going and putting it on an exchange, right? Like, there should be an in between. There should be you know some. You should be. It shouldn't just be Bitcoin as a pet rock, as the altcoiners like to you know uh, shit on Bitcoin for. It, it should really. You should be able to do more with it without. Giving up all of your um, all of your rights and um, you know giving up complete custody of it. So I, I think I think that's a really good point. Yeah, definitely. And like just for the audience, it's a similar way I, I think of mining. Like mining is a unique mm-hmm. way to where you you buy an actual machine that can convert you know one dollar of energy into two dollars of, of Bitcoin, and it's like very core and native to the Bitcoin network. It's not like you're holding actual Bitcoin; you're holding a piece of hardware, but it's still like pretty native to the Bitcoin network, which is pretty cool. Um, I do kind of want to get into like how you guys have built, you know, atomic finance. And like, I know Tony touched on it a little bit, but you mentioned uh, DLCs. What exactly are DLCs? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, DLC stands for discrete log contract. And um, essentially what it is, it's it's a, it's a smart contract on Bitcoin without the smart. Um, you know, it's a contract on Bitcoin. It allows for you to um, uh, really enter into, you know, a very simple contract between you, a counterparty, and the Oracle, um, which which essentially allows for you to get exposure to some type of financial tool. So that could be a bet. That could be an options contract. That could be a futures contract. You know, uh, whatever you want to do. Um, and what's great about it is on chain, it actually just looks like a two of two multisig. And so, you know, it's just kind of the same idea of lightning. If you want to close out of this contract early, you just do a um, an early close with your counterparty. Otherwise, upon expiry, the Oracle goes and kind of re- releases a signature, which allows you to close out of that 202 multisig. So, you know, it's it's a really, really simple contract. Um, there's, you know, very limited risk. There's no risk of kind of smart contract hacks. And really the only thing you need to trust in the system um, is obviously the Oracle, because we need some type of outside data to be able to report on, you know, what is the Bitcoin price or what was the outcome of this bet in order to be able to close out those contracts. But one of the really nice properties of DLCs is that um, the Oracle doesn't actually need to know about the existence of the contracts. And so you kind of have this um, Oracle that is blind, that can be blind in a sense, and just really reporting on the price and then other people that are, you know, making bets based on that information. Um, So, yeah. Very cool. Are there like ideas that you guys have to minimize trust in the Oracle, like in the future? Like, can can you theoretically have multiple oracles that like the the DLC relies on? So you're not even trusting one exchange or one person, whoever the entity is that's updating the oracle. Is there a way to trust multiple oracles? Yeah, absolutely. If if you check out the um, on the DLC like specification, there's actually um, like a specification for multi oracle, um, and so we have plans to implement that down the line. You know, you might set it up as like a two of three or three of five oracles. Um, I think what we need to do in order to implement that in the app right now is just do some benchmarking around because um, uh, for all these you know signatures that you need to create, you need to create X number of more signatures when there's multi-Oracle. And so just making sure we can do that in a really great user experience is kind of the only thing holding us back from doing that right now, but definitely something we want to implement down the line. Cool. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, I kind of want to dive in. So DLCs are obviously like on-chain, like that's one of the, the features of this technology. Um, what happens, I guess, if we experience another like 
bull run and transaction fees spike and all of a sudden you know to enter this dlc it's not you can't just do one sat per virtual byte which may be like a couple cents uh or 10 cents or whatever it might be depending on the size of the transaction but it could be twenty dollars fifty dollars if things get really crazy like how do you think does this scale if, if fees get high? And then if, if not, like, are there, can this be pushed, I guess, to second layers of Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess to um, address the first thing, which is that, you know, if, if you have a case where um, fee rates rise significantly, um, even for on, like on-chain transactions, if you're investing a, you know, a, a significant amount, like say if you're investing one Bitcoin or, um, you know, even 1.0.1 Bitcoin or above, um, you know, from our, you know, backtesting, we've seen that, you know, that can still, still be, still be profitable and, you know, might eat into fees. Say if you're doing 0.1, like it might take 20% of your fees, for example, if you're going up to like 50 sats per V byte or even a hundred. Um, and so there's still room, there's lots of room to grow for the fee rate to grow and for this still to be um, possible on chain. But at the same time, there's lots of development being done, um, to allow for DLCs on second layers. Um, I know that, um, like Crypto Garage, um, shout out to Thibaut. And uh, the Itchy Sats guys have been doing work on DLC channels. So that allows for um, essentially similar to how you would have a lightning channel. You would have a DLC channel, which is, you know, you enter into a, um, a channel with a counterparty, might be a market maker, for example. And then you're able to enter into a DLC and close it out without making any on-chain transaction. And so this can allow for um, obviously a lot of trades to occur um, without you having to settle on chain for a significant period of time. So, you know, that could change, you know, even for our model, you know, you having to make an on-chain transaction once a month to maybe once every three months or once every four months. Um, so definitely things coming down the, the pipeline. I think to be honest though, um, like if you're looking at say, uh, you know, DLCs on second layers, like a lot of people have talked about, oh, DLCs on lightning, for example. Um, and this is going to happen once we have uh, PTLC support, which came with Taproot, which is just a different way of sending the um, the payments across the the nodes. Um, and uh, but so that will be possible. But the problem with DLCs over Lightning is when you enter that DLC, it has to lock up the capital throughout the entire um, throughout the entire route. And so I think what this is most likely going to look like is um, folks are going to enter into a channel with a market maker, and then it'll it'll just be really easy to kind of settle these things off chain, and then eventually uh, on chain after a period of time. Yeah. Huh. Very interesting. Kind of going off of that question, how do you think Bitcoin as a whole, or just very generically, scales long term? And you know, the talk recently and action, I guess, around ordinals, you know, has in the at least over the last month congested the mempool. Now the mempool is kind of chilling for a little bit, um, or at least last I looked. You know, how does Bitcoin scale long term, and then how has ordinals affected you know what you guys are building? Or has it? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. We were we were sitting here uh, a couple of weeks ago. And the mempool is rising. And we're like, oh, geez, you know, uh, is this going to affect our, our users? Because obviously, if, if users are doing like 0.1 Bitcoin and above, it's not a big deal. But we have lots of folks who are doing, say, like a trial amount. Like they'll try out with, you know, um, a million a million sats, 0.01 Bitcoin. Um, and so that does, obviously, it affects it because it's a lower amount. And so we saw the fee rates rising significantly. And by the end of the month, when it was time for people to roll over, you know, it's back to two sats per V-byte. And so that, you know, that was, that was, that was interesting to see that, uh, you know, the, I don't know, some people like to call it the ordinal attack didn't really, didn't really affect things. But um, I think in general, like what's, what's the underlying problem here? Okay. Um, Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin doesn't scale. Okay. But how, how does Bitcoin not scale? Um, well, there isn't enough 
you know, space on chain. Like, if we wanted to onboard 7 billion people to Bitcoin, um, everyone can't have their own private key. Okay, well, so, I mean, that's a problem unless you want everything to be custodial and the majority of Bitcoin to be held by custodians. And so how do you, how do you, you know, how do you solve that? I think that's the million dollar question. Um, and so uh, I, I think like, really, it's like, I think it's an interesting question because, um, you know, we've made some changes to Bitcoin. We've made, we've obviously had lots of improvements, you know, SegWit enabled Lightning and we've had Taproot come to the scene and, um, and, and these things have really enabled for, you know, the second layer Lightning to really thrive. But even with Lightning, that doesn't solve the problem. And so how do we, where do we go from there? Um, I think long-term it's going to be a question of, you know, what changes can we make to Bitcoin that are really small, that don't change the incentives that still allow for, for Bitcoin to scale. Um, lots of people have talked about drive chain. Um, it, it seems to change the incentives significantly. Lots of folks have talked about, um, you know, uh, multi-party channels and lightning, which would allow for, okay, you know, um, instead of, uh, you know, lots of people would be able to settle within like one lightning channel and you would be able to have like many parties associated with it. Um, and so maybe it's something of that nature where we can allow for Bitcoin to scale um, using, you know, a, a very, a very small improvement. But to be honest, I don't know what, I don't know what that is. Um, I mean, Joe, I'm curious from you, like, what are your, what are your thoughts like on Bitcoin scaling and where we're at right now? Yeah. I mean, like you said, I think you answered it fairly well. It's, it's a complicated question and it relates, I guess, to the block size war that, that kind of already played out somewhat. Um, but yeah, no, it's a great question. We published a report with Riot platforms that had something called the Bitcoin scaling cycle in it, where we kind of go through phases to where we see a bunch of you know transaction fees rise, the mempool gets really blocked and, and bloated, and then all of a sudden people are like, oh my gosh, like Bitcoin can't scale. You know, we need to build scaling solutions. And out of that, you know, came most of Lightning, I guess. Exchanges started batching transactions. We got SegWit. So we got all of these liquid started to get, you know, at least developed or used a little bit. Um, so we got these, like, scaling technologies that kind of came out of uh, high fees. And then now I feel like we're kind of at the point where fees haven't been really high, at least over the last year or so and now people are like kind of talking the other way they're like hey bitcoin security is flawed it's it's scaling too well and so it's kind of like this vicious cycle to where okay bitcoin's scaling too well then all of a sudden we have another wave of adoption which may be maybe this year maybe next year after the halving when macro conditions get better and supply gets more scarce and when you know when when adoption you know rises and we have the the massive parabolic bull run that's when like fees will go crazy again because again there's a fixed amount of block space where not everyone can necessarily hold their own private keys like in the split second and so then fees will rise again and then all of a sudden there's going to be demand for for scaling technologies again and people are going to get really creative with whether it's with lightning or, or liquid or, or other things that we can't even imagine today and so yeah i think it's a great question i think market forces kind of enable it to play out in a very efficient effective way over time there's probably pain on both sides where it's like okay like bitcoin's not scaling like we need to build some solutions but then you know those solutions inevitably will get built without ideally without compromising you know the the important thing about bitcoin is that like the core consensus rules are not going to be changed in any meaningful way um so yeah i guess that those are my thoughts <laughs> yeah well that that's actually a really interesting point because like we all, everyone talks about, oh, you know, there's there's not enough of a fee rate now. Like that's what, what have we done so well with Lightning that we don't, um, you know, that the fee rate doesn't pay the miners enough. But it's an interesting question of whether 
you know, you know, when we have these cycles, actually, I haven't thought about this before. When we have these cycles that occur in the future, as the uh, block subsidy um, decreases, um, you know, is there going to be a lot more pain for miners in the bear cycle than the bull cycle? But maybe the the profits of the bull cycle will make up for the bear cycle. I don't know. Do you have any have any thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great question, right? Like miners, obviously, the mining revenue is from the block subsidy and transaction fees. So selfishly from a miner's perspective, obviously you want both to be really high. In my opinion, even though we're gonna have a halving in 2024, the price of Bitcoin is gonna do a lot more than a 2X in my opinion from $20,000. And so the price itself is gonna make up more than the decline in the block subsidy. But you're right, eventually the block subsidy is going to actually go to zero. It's, it's kind of far away, but it's going to exponentially turn that way because it gets cut in half every four years. And so miners, I think, will be relying more on transaction fees. But I also think, like, as we're talking about, can Bitcoin scale or can it not scale? I think there's a fixed amount of block space. I think the most likely scenario is, hey, if we're going to onboard literally billions of people and, and millions of companies and, and potentially even governments to this technology, like, there's going to be a lot of demand to settle on base layer Bitcoin and it's going to be sizable amounts of Bitcoin. And the reality is we're probably going to see, okay, Bitcoin can't scale again, and it's going to be back to that scenario. Um, and, and people that you know, may not have you know, much Bitcoin may very rarely settle to the base layer, or maybe we'll see a crazy scaling solution that enables them to settle to the base layer. Um, but I think like the reality is that, hey, transaction fees are probably going to go up very significantly, you know, over the next 10 to 20 years. And, you know, scaling solutions will occur. But yeah, mining miners will be, especially, you know, 20, 40, 50 years out, miners will be definitely relying more on, on transaction fees. Um, another thing is like miners are like diversifying their revenue at this point. Like you see Riot putting out press releases that, hey, because of the ERCOT, the way ERCOT is set up, which is the Texas electric, electrical grid, they, one month in July during the summer when it was really hot, um, they made more money not mining Bitcoin than they were mining Bitcoin. And so, and it's because of, of how the grid is set up and they're basically an, acting as this like demand response uh, system for the grid. So I think there's gonna be a lot more miners kind of integrating with energy grids themselves. And they're kind of gonna be not just making money from like mining Bitcoin and earning transaction fees, but they're going to be making money, you know, not not hashing, basically. And so I think that it's going to get interesting. And, and I think more and more miners are going to really get involved deep within the energy industry. Because I think that there's a lot of like power producers or, or oil and gas producers. There's a lot of excess energy that's just never used. And miners are this like time and location independent resource that can come in and, and operate 50 percent. 50% of the time, but if they're paying almost next to nothing for the energy, it makes a lot of sense to do it. Um, so that's kind of how I think it's going to play out for miners. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And I guess the other thing we're forgetting as well is how much technology improves also over the course of the next 50, 100 years. What's the likelihood, you know, um, we have, I guess, a block size limit of four megabytes right now, but, but is it conceivable that internet speeds improve and hardware improves enough that maybe we double that like i'm you know i'm not i'm not saying do that today i, 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 um, I don't want to be um 
crucified for another block size wars. But, um, but you know, that, over the next hundred years, maybe that's conceivable, you know? And so maybe, maybe that just like lessens the burden slightly in addition to all these scaling solutions that we, we get to a point where we're at an equilibrium where we can onboard 7 billion people over the course of the next 150 years. Um, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I definitely wouldn't advocate for a block size increase right now. <laughs> but yeah, no, totally agree. It's it's going to be very interesting to see, I guess, how it plays out. Um, but yeah, I guess, do you guys, from, from, you know, building atomic finance, do you guys, like, know of any use cases like are miners using atomic finance at all or i know i could probably like talk about it as well but do you guys have any users that you know are mining bitcoin and, and maybe using your product yeah to to our knowledge there are no like i guess like in kind of like industrial grade like miners or like you know kind of like um there might be like some folks like kind of so, like hobbyists kind of like you know like um shops or what what have you but like um to to our knowledge there isn't any like big miners who are using it um i think that like moving forward though i think that it is an interesting question uh we've even kind of been discussing it amongst ourselves in terms of like oh like you know dlcs are quite versatile in terms of like you know the types of financial contracts or strategies that you can encode and so you know what could that look like in terms of strategies that might make sense for say a miner, an industrial grade miner, or like, you know, or, you know, entities or companies or even countries, you know, we see countries like uh, adopting Bitcoin, obviously. And so I think these are all really good questions. I think that um, certainly like there's opportunities there in terms of like, oh, maybe miners could use it for to help part of their treasury management, for example. Um, you know, um, we know that, you know, that has traditionally been uh, you know, an issue for some some entities in the past, and you know whether it's hedging da- price downside uh, in a in a bull market to kind of like you know cover cover uh, uh, cover your butt in terms of you know if things go go the wrong way or what have you. So I think it's definitely a very interesting kind of avenue that we haven't yet explored, but that we want to explore in the future uh, after we've kind of focus on um, you know just kind of more of a B two C approach right now in terms of you know your average. Um, Bitcoin holder, um, who are our primary users of the app at the moment, but uh, definitely a very interesting kind of space and problem space that we want to kind of explore moving forward um, uh, further into the future. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Or Matt, did you have anything you wanted to add on? Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I, I was just curious from your your perspective, Joe. Like, obviously, you guys like um, have, have a lot of uh, like you know, chat with miners a lot. I was curious, like, what are the biggest um, like pain points that miners have right now in terms of treasury management. Um, obviously, we saw lots of miners kind of go uh, go go out of business in the last year because obviously they did not have good treasury management. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's been kind of the story of the mining industry throughout 2021, 2022, and, and even early 2023. A lot of people got and and you know public corporations, private companies as well got in very over their over their head taking out you know ASIC collateralized loans borrowing as much money as they possibly could and just kind of going leverage long Bitcoin and especially Bitcoin mining which is in a way a derivative of, of Bitcoin itself which is you know more potentially more return but also more risk and when all of this leverage piled up a lot of people when the price of Bitcoin didn't go the right way, for, for their trade, uh, obviously they got wiped out or, or got close to being wiped out. 
And so, yeah, I think this is like a really interesting or topic around treasury management because I remember in 2021, you would hear like all of the public miners announcing, hey, we just, you know, worked with Bitmain and we're, we're acquiring 50,000 S19 XPs. And we also, we bought them all like on leverage or something like that. And it's like, okay, like this is going to be crazy. You're either going to be like worth a hundred billion dollars, like in two years, or you're going to be worth zero. And so yeah. it makes sense. Like it, it's, it's very aggressive play, but like high risk, high reward. Um, so yeah, I think because, you know, there, there aren't a hundred billion dollar Bitcoin mining companies that exist today, not even really anywhere close to that. Um, treasury management and I guess operating very conservatively has become more and more paramount. Um, and it's obvious that like, hey, if, if you're going to play with, with this thing called Bitcoin during its monetization phase, it's a very volatile asset. And if you're caught on the wrong side of the trade, uh, you're going to get wiped out. And so I think that this is, you know, like I said, it's a great topic around treasury management. I think something like the covered call strategy that you guys already have today would probably be pretty helpful for miners because then they could say, hey, we want to hold, you know, a certain amount of Bitcoin in our balance sheet. We also are probably at least selling Bitcoin to cover our operating expenses on a day to day or month to month basis. But we also want to hold Bitcoin to get that up, you know, the potential upside exposure uh, in the long run. But we want to kind of generate some yield off of that. So, hey, we have some extra cash flow to, to pay for, for expenses if, if, if Bitcoin, you know, goes sideways or, or even trends down. So, yeah, I think it's something that a lot of miners probably would be interested in. Um, and I, that's one of the reasons why I'm excited about, I guess, what you guys are building. Yeah, definitely. I think there's or you could even like tweak the cover call strategy a little bit where basically it's called a caller strategy where you sell a cover call, but also buy like a, like a put. Um, in that case, basically, you know, if Bitcoin keeps rising, you know, from a miner's perspective, okay, maybe like selling that cover call is, is a good thing and keeps me disciplined. I'm selling at a high. And then basically like if, if it doesn't go that way and it, you know, ends up, uh, uh, dropping quite a bit, then you still have the put that protects a, against downside risk. So yeah, definitely lots of kind of interesting things that uh, we can kind of experiment with on that side of things in the future. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you that that's a great idea because a lot of mining, you can, at a certain point in time, you can look at the price of Bitcoin, you can look at hash price, you can look at your energy expenses, you'd be like, okay, if I could like just lock in these prices over the next period, I would do pretty well. Um, and so that's something like that where you can somewhat lock in the price of Bitcoin, at least with your treasury. I think that'd be, you know, super helpful. I know like the Luxor guys have created um, like a hash rate derivatives mm -hmm. uh, marketplace where like you can hedge against, you know, difficulty increases because that's kind of your future cash flows denominated in Bitcoin. And so, yeah, I think products like that where miners can hedge their, their price volatility risk are, are fantastic because there is a lot of volatility in Bitcoin. <laughs> As we all know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm curious, how did you guys go about creating, so back to Atomic Finance, how did you guys go about creating the, the current covered call strategy? And I guess like when you guys built it, you know, how do you avoid like overfitting and, and, and saying like, hey, like we're, we're testing it on, or training it, your model, I guess, on, on this previous data. How do you make sure that like, it's gonna actually perform to similar standards in the future? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, so I guess first off, like, what is what is backtesting? Like, how do you how do you build a trading strategy? So typically, what folks do is um, you'll come up with a certain hypothesis of 
Um, here is how here is um, you know certain conditions that we think will yield a good return um, trading over you know a, a certain period of time, and you'll go and you'll you'll back test that against historical data, say all the way back to 2012. Um, you know, so a, a super simple maybe example off the top of my head might be um, every time Bitcoin goes down 10%, I'm going to buy Bitcoin, and then I'm going to see you know I'm going to compare that to maybe simple DCA and see does that perform like a higher PNL over the last you know 10 years, for example. Um, and uh, and so you can do that, and um, you know that that will yield a certain result. But one of the issues that might come up is what's called overfitting. What is overfitting? Overfitting is basically the idea of um, you know if you if you tinker you know with uh, the parameters that you're putting into your backtest a little bit too much, um, then you you know you might you know you might just uh, happen upon a result that looks very positive, right? And so you're able to um, you know. You can put out a narrative that shows a strategy that is very, you know, positive and yields a lot of return. But when you actually go to trade it, it does not do that. So how do, how do you account for that? Well, there's a couple things that you can do to make sure that you're not overfitting your your model. So number one is um, keep it simple, right? So if you're using these really complicated algorithms for generating a strategy, there's a good chance you're overfitting it. You tinkered with it so much that you resulted in a strategy that is actually not effective at all in trading. You go to trade it and it loses money. Um, the other thing as well is to have um, you know an in and out sample, um, or basically a, like a, a testing uh, part of it, and, and a, a like a back testing. Um, so two different samples um, in your back test. So one will be say if you're optimizing over a certain parameter. So say say I might choose an in sample period of uh, two years and an out sample of six months. So I go and I back test it over you know two years, maybe from 2012 to 2014, and then I go and run that the first six months of 2014 and I see, does it yield a positive result? So what you're doing is you're actually emulating the process of what you'd be doing by back testing and then actually trading. And so in this way, you can actually avoid overfitting significantly. So what we did is we used a combination of actually being able to use um, you know, historical Bitcoin data all the way back to 2012 um, and using technical indicators that look at you know trends in the market um, and uh, and basically back to that all the way back to 2012. So we've got a model that works with Bitcoin historical data. Now, options data is a little bit different. It's only been around for since 2019. Um, so, you know, around three years. And so then we use that model in combination with um, the options data to actually, you know, generate the, the cover call strategy. So um, it was using a couple of those steps to avoid overfitting and back testing with that data that allowed us to come up with the strategy. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, we're kind of working on not necessarily like a trading uh, model at, at Blockware, but we're working on like a hash rate and, and, and mining difficulty model to try mm -hmm. to say like, okay, like if hash price is this and, you know, the latest generation ASIC is this, what's the hash rate going to be, uh, you know, in 180 days or, or a year? So I th there's, it's really cool. It's really cool that you guys have built that for actually the price of Bitcoin. Challenging, but it's very cool. <laughs> that, that's fascinating. Is there is there um, is there like technical uh, technical indicators for for like hash rate? I, I've never even looked at that. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there's so like the way that we're thinking about it. Right, now, we haven't published anything. I don't even know. I've so very early stages. But like the way that we're looking out looking at it right now is like okay, well, we know that hash, or at least in my opinion, hash rate is a lagging indi indicator on the price of Bitcoin. Like when the price of Bitcoin goes up a lot, like in 2021. 
um, and mining difficulty is relatively low. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, I need to mine Bitcoin. These machines are printing money. And then that leads to hash rate being built out in, in 2022. And so there's kind of like things like, I guess, inputs that you can look at and be like, okay, what's the latest generation ASIC at? What's hash price at? What has been the hash rate growth over the last you know week? What has been the hash rate growth over the last year, over the last six months? And then using all of that, I guess you can kind of create a, a model that says, okay, hash rate growth over the next month or the next six months is probably going to be something like X based off you know all of the historical data that you you back tested off. So yeah, interesting similar similar things that we're working on. Um, I, I'm curious. I know this is kind of a, a, a different topic, um, and I don't I don't even know actually how to say this term, but Noster or Noster, whichever one you you call it, I'm on it. It's pretty cool. I like it. Um, what are your What are you guys thoughts on on Noster or Noster? How do you say it? <laughs> I have no idea what the Noster is. I guess we should probably say what is Noster. Um, uh, Noster is like I guess decent, I, I I would say decentralized Twitter, but it's probably more like distributed Twitter. Uh, a protocol. It's like a protocol that allows for folks to be able to do essentially what happens on Twitter, but from a protocol level, and people build clients on top of it. Um, yeah. Sorry. What, what was your question again, Joe? I, I forgot the question. <laughs> <laughs> all good. All good. I guess like just what are your thoughts on it? I mean, like I've been using it. I've seen some people complain that like the user experience isn't great. It's been mostly good for me, um, and it's cool to to know. I guess at least in my opinion that. Hey, like if Twitter got shut down or like Bitcoin Twitter, like everyone got censored and cut off, we kind of have this backup to where we can all go and still communicate with each other. Um, but those are at least my thoughts. Like, what are your thoughts on on Nester? Well, well, I thought it was really cool how um, you know Jack, who's someone who went and obviously was a co-founder of Twitter, um, always believed that Twitter should have been a protocol in essence from the very beginning, and I think it's very, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, we need decentralized social media. And over the years, they've gone and they've built a blockchain around it, and which has just been, you know, just nonsense. <laughs> and so it's really um, refreshing to see um, folks come, come from kind of a first principles and build a protocol for how to build a distributed system and then, and then go and build it and then have Lightning kind of be the native currency of that, of that protocol. And so I think that's been really fascinating to see. Um, it's been also really cool to see where the interest of this has, has come from. Um, you know, uh, I think uh, one of the popular clients right now, like Domus, Iris.to, I know Domus recently, they're really trying to get on the app store and they kept submitting it. So this, this is, Domus is just a client that allows for people to use Nostra in a really simple manner. It literally looks like Twitter. Um, and, uh, and they published, they finally got it onto the, on the app store um, after multiple reviews, because Apple said, oh, you need to be able to ban people, and that's not how the protocol works. <laughs> and and they finally launch it, and they get 153,000 downloads in three days. Right? Insane. Um, and the, and a lot there are a lot of searches for Nostra from, like, China and, like, Hong Kong. And then it was eventually removed from the Chinese app store. And so, you know, it's really awesome to see, like, where, you know, where folks are getting interested in this and how the censorship resistance aspect um, is something that's really powerful and really important. I think particularly after what we just saw with the shadow banning and what's come out with the Twitter files over the past, like, um, you know, couple months. So really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, are there any use cases for Noster and, and like, your vision of sound finance? Yeah. Actually, it's funny. Um, 
Uh, Fia Jaff, who's one of the um, uh, like core developers of Nostra, yeah, he, he created a post the other day, which was like, oh, what are all the use cases for Nostra? Like, obviously, everyone's using it like Twitter right now. But one of the actual cool use cases of it is for, um, say, like Oracle announcements. So if you have like various um, like DLC Oracle announcements that are created, it's actually a perfect broadcasting system because um, instead of you having to rely on some one centralized API to be able to get that access to that, you can just use Nostra. It's also really great for marketplaces. So in the future, if you wanted to allow for, say, a, um, a distributed or decentralized um, exchange for, say, like options or futures contracts that is built on top of Bitcoin for using DLCs, you could also see that built um, on Nostra. Um, I think a, a good example of this, like an alternative that's been built is, say, like Join Market, which was designed for um, a to- uh, for co- um, coin joins. Sorry, um, it was designed for coin joins, and right now they use IRC Chat, which is just, as everyone knows, is just a centralized server, and then they have backups that they can go to. But if you use something like Nostra, you can actually get that um, kind of broadcast in a much more distributed manner without kind of relying on one server. So, lots of different applications for for Sound Finance for Nostra for sure in the future. Awesome, yeah, it's great to hear. I didn't, I didn't think of, about those specific applications. Uh, last question, then we can go ahead and wrap it up. This was, you know, a super awesome conversation. Um, what is your vision for Bitcoin in the next, you know, twenty years? Like we talked about, sound finance and, and I guess doing like financial transactions using Bitcoin base layer or, or on Lightning. But like, how do you envision Bitcoin and like the world as a whole in twenty years? Yeah, I think, I think like. Maybe I have a like slightly controversial opinion, but I think that you know it's not necessarily inevitable just yet that Bitcoin's going to become this world reserve currency. I think it's there's quite a bit of work between now and then that we still have to work on. You know whether that's you know you know fundamental simple stuff like bringing more builders, attracting more builders to work on Bitcoin. Whether that's things like um, even like educating politicians to. Um, kind of help them understand the the benefits of Bitcoin more, and of course, building more on ramps and aiding adoption. But of course, like you know, for us, like what we're focused on is, you know, building tools such that if folks want to do, well, want to do so, they can actually use their Bitcoin with with uh, financial tools in a uh, you know in a self sovereign way. Um, I think that like, you know, uh, the in in twenty years, hopefully, like what we'll get to see is. Um, you know, a thriving ecosystem of different, like, kind of uh, layers on, on, built on top of Bitcoin where, like, the underlying um, consensus rules of the base layer is obviously, you know, for a specific purpose, maybe for um, specific larger scale tra- uh, transactions and settlements. Um, but then you have different layers built on top of Bitcoin that can kind of, like, be for specific purposes and use cases. And maybe there's one uh, layer there for sound finance and different finance uh, show tools um, on Bitcoin as well. And so that's kind of how I see it. Uh, lots of work still to get to, to get to that point. But I think that, uh, you know, um, Bitcoin community out there is a very diverse group of people who, you know, are working on many of these different aspects. And so definitely very kind of like encouraged by all the development and all the builders on Bitcoin. And so, yeah, excited to excited to kind of like be part of that journey and hopefully um, help Bitcoin move closer to become a world reserve asset. Matt? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, let me think. Going to zero. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, well, if it, okay, if an asteroid hits the Earth, probably going to zero. But if an asteroid doesn't hit the Earth... In the next or a UFO years, invasion, uh, I guess. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah one, one of the two, you know. <laughs> um, so, 
if those two things don't happen, then I think, um, like, I, I agree with Tony that the, the default for Bitcoin is not immediate success, right? There's, mm-hmm. you know, we there's not enough space on chain for 7 billion people to use Bitcoin today. And so some changes need to be made, not huge changes, because that's going to destroy the entire incentive system that we've built up. And so some changes need to be made to allow for, you know, Bitcoin to scale in the long term. But I, I don't think that's I don't think that's good. Probably not going to be that big of an issue for the next 20 years. I think probably lightning. And the, I, I think another question, too, is, um, you know, what's the biggest risk to Bitcoin? The biggest risk to Bitcoin is uh, politicians having proper uh, 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 fiscal monetary policy. Right. And so what's the likelihood of that happening? Well, that's probably pretty low. <laughs> um, and so depending on how badly also other fiat currencies do, I think that's also going to influence what happens for Bitcoin. But I think in general, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for countries around the world that typically have had a very terrible, um, you know, a monetary system and hyperinflation that is occurring for them to have the opportunity to go and actually adopt Bitcoin like we've seen in El Salvador. Maybe lots of South American countries, countries in Africa, Turkey are going to have Bitcoin as legal tender in the next 20 years. And I think that's going to be really the bull case for Bitcoin and having this decentralized money that allows for that to occur. And also for it, maybe in 20 years, like Bitcoin is the the standard internet money. You know, you don't, you know, instead of using a a typical credit card, you're, you're, you know, you're you're usually paying using Lightning Network. Um, You know, maybe, maybe that's what we see in 20 years. So that's what I'm hopeful for. I think we need to do the work to get there. I think we need to make sure that Bitcoin scales and, you know, let's roll up our sleeves and let's, let's, let's make sure that that happens. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that was, how about you, Joe? Yeah, I think both of those were, were really well said. I mean, I'm definitely very bullish on Bitcoin. I don't think Bitcoin's perfect by any means. I don't think anything is really perfect by by definition. But I think it's simply the least uncertain asset there is. And I think because of that, you know, 10 years from now, 15, 20 years from now, there's still going to be only 21 million Bitcoin. That's not going to change. It's, it's very hard for anyone really or any group of people really to ever change that. And I think because of that, it's just going to be simply the least uncertain asset. More people are going to adopt it over time. We're going to continue to have a halving every roughly every four years where the supply gets more scarce and all of a sudden miners are selling less coins than they were the previous four years. And so, yeah, I think that like over time, you know, adoption grows and it doesn't break basically. And because of that, I think that's going to be good for Bitcoin. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's interesting to think about the long-term future of Bitcoin for sure. Um, but we'll go ahead and, and wrap this up. I'm curious, where can the audience find you guys and what you're building uh, after they listen to this episode? Yeah, absolutely. You can check it out. Um, just uh, if you on Twitter, we're at Atomic Finance or our website, atomic.finance. Um, and you can find uh, myself and, and Tony on uh, Twitter, Twitter as well, I think, at Tony Kai and um at uh matt 13 black yeah awesome sounds great well enjoyed it guys glad we could have you on the podcast